It seems likely that this mirror was removed, perhaps to be replaced or repaired, stored in the custom house, and then forgotten. This is 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. I'm Rachel Roberts, the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums, and today we'll be looking at the stories behind another object from our collections as we celebrate 100 years of our museums. In this episode, we're shining a light on something that helped keep sailors safe for decades. It's an intriguing and beautiful object that had a very practical use. Today's object is a lighthouse reflector. The lighthouse reflector is a large round mirror which was used in a lighthouse to reflect a beam of light out to incoming ships. It is a large, heavy wooden disc with a concave shape about 94 centimetres in diameter. The mirror is not one large surface, but is instead made up of lots of small mirrors stuck onto the wooden surface. This reflector is only part of a lighthouse, and when in use it would have sat in a structure behind a light, reflecting the rays out to sea. We spoke to Victoria Petherick Bryan, museum assistant at Lancaster Maritime Museum, who has done some research into the mirror, which is one of her favourite objects in the collection. She began by telling us the basics about how a reflector like this works. Lighthouses have been around for thousands of years, but mostly in a very simple form. You build a tower and you light a fire or a lamp at the top of it. The bigger the flame, the brighter it is and the further away it can be seen. But of course that needs a lot of fuel and the problem is that most of the light is wasted because it spreads out in all directions. This mirror solves that problem by collecting the light and focusing it into a beam travelling in just one direction. Now, the shape of the mirror is the key to how it achieves this. It looks just like a shallow bowl but it has a very specific curve known as a parabola. Some early lighthouses used flat mirrors, which helped a bit, but it wasn't until the 1760s that a man called William Hutchinson began experimenting with these parabolic reflectors. He realised that when you put a lamp at the focal point, just in front of the centre of the mirror, it reflects the light in exactly the right way to create a directed beam. He was the dockmaster at the Port of Liverpool, so he was able to install his new reflectors in all the Wirral lighthouses. They were a huge success. Uh, it was said at the time that new lights could be seen from up to 10 miles away instead of just a mile or two without the mirrors. The idea soon spread, and parabolic reflectors became the gold standard in lighthouse design. They have other applications too, and you can still find them today in everything from car headlights to radio telescopes. It's a very similar design. Hutchinson described some of his reflectors in a book he wrote in 1777. They were three, five and a half, seven and a half, and twelve feet diameter. The three smallest being made of tin plates soldered together, and the largest of wood covered with plates of looking glass. Now our reflector is only three feet across, but it's constructed in much the same way as the last one he mentions, with 617 small pieces of mirror covering its surface. It probably dates from just a few decades after he was writing, around the end of the 18th century, or the beginning of the 19th. So that's the science behind the reflector. But what about the historical stories behind it? Where did it come from and how did it end up in the museum collections? Well, it was donated to the museum in 1990 by a group called LADOS. That's the Lancaster Amateur Dramatic and Operatic Society. 
They'd been using the Lancaster Custom House as a theatre since the 1940s, and they found this mirror somewhere in the building. They started using it in their productions, and when they moved out in 1985, they took it with them. The Custom House then became the Maritime Museum, and a few years later, Laidos decided to send the mirror home, so to speak. What we don't really know is how it came to be in the Custom House in the first place, but we can make an educated guess. When the building was serving its original purpose as the Custom House for the Port of Lancaster, it was owned by the Lancaster Port Commission, who also maintained all the local lighthouses. So it seems likely that this mirror was removed from one of those at some point, perhaps to be replaced or repaired, stored in the custom house, and then forgotten. We can't be certain, but based on the size and design of the mirror, the most likely origin is Walney Lighthouse. That might sound odd, since Walney Island is on the far side of Morecambe Bay and not very close to Lancaster at all. But in the 18th century, Lancaster was the biggest port in the area, and the Lancaster Port Commission was responsible for the whole of the bay. Walney Lighthouse was one of their earliest major building projects, and it was intended to guide ships from the Irish Sea into Morecambe Bay and towards the mouth of the River Loon. The lighthouse was originally built from timber in 1790, and it had a simple fixed light. The next year it was improved by adding a rotating mechanism, three reflectors of the same design as this one, fixed to a clockwork-driven shaft. Each reflector had its own oil lamp set at the focal point just in front of the centre of the mirror, and a full rotation took a quarter of an hour, so passing ships would see a light flashing every five minutes. The rotating shaft was turned by a clockwork mechanism, with a weight which slowly descended through the inside of the tower, so one of the jobs of the lighthouse keeper would have been to wind it back up. Now that original timber lighthouse burnt down in 1803, but it was quickly replaced with a stone building, and the design of the light itself didn't change until 1820, when the three glass-faceted reflectors were replaced with a new set of four made from silver-plated copper. So our reflector is probably one of those used at Walney during those first three decades before this change in design, but again we can't be completely certain, so if anyone out there has any concrete information on this we'd love to hear from you. Tor went on to tell us a little bit about the lighthouses maintained by the Lancaster Port Commission. We began by asking her if Walney Lighthouse was still operational. It certainly is, and still does the same job of guiding ships in and out of Morecambe Bay. The tower hasn't changed at all, and it's now a Grade 2 listed building. The original oil lamps were replaced with gas lights in 1909, and then switched to electric lamps in 1953. But it wasn't fully automated until 2003, which made it the last manned lighthouse in England. Now that it has been automated, there's no need for a full-time keeper to live on site, and the keeper's accommodation is rented out as a holiday cottage. It's right in the middle of a nature reserve, so it's a great place for bird watching, or just for anyone who wants a really unusual place to stay. About half a century after Walney Lighthouse was constructed, two more lighthouses were built near Cockersands Abbey at the mouth of the River Loon. These work together as a pair of what are known as leading lights. That means that a ship offshore needs to line them up with one light directly above the other to make sure it's approaching the entrance to the river along the safest channel through the sandbanks. 
The upper light of this pair was a wooden structure that was originally built on wheels so that it could be moved around when the shifting sands of the estuary changed the position of the deep channel into the river. That must have proved to be impractical though because it wasn't long before it was converted into a stationary building with the keeper's accommodation built into the base of it. A bigger keeper's cottage was built beside it in stone a little later and that still stands today. The lighthouse itself was replaced by a steel tower with an automated electric light in the 1950s and then removed entirely about 30 years later. The lower light of the pair is quite different. It's a much more traditional looking stone tower known as Plover Scar Lighthouse for the rocky outcrop it sits on out in the middle of the river. It was automated around the same time as the upper light and this one is still in use, guiding ships into the mouth of the loon and towards glass and dock. It made it into the news a few years ago in 2016 when a cargo ship entering the river at night ran into it. It might sound like a bad joke a ship colliding with a lighthouse but it caused some serious damage cracking the tower in two and knocking the top part about a foot out of place. It would have been easy to replace it with a modern concrete structure at that point, but it's a beautiful historic building and thankfully the Port Commission opted to invest in restoring it instead. Aside from Walney Island Lighthouse and Plover Scar, the Commission operates a number of light buoys, and in the past it's even used light ships. These can be moored wherever they're needed as the channels through the sands shift over time. There are also harbour lights. Glass and Dock, for instance, has a tiny little 18th century building known as the Watch House, with an octagonal lantern on the roof like a lighthouse in miniature. Morecambe has an interesting one too. At the end of the Stone Jetty is a building which started out as the town's first railway station, with an eight metre tall lighthouse just next to it at the seaward end. The light used to guide ships in to moor alongside the jetty and railway passengers could get straight off the train and onto a ferry. The station closed down in the early 20th century and the building's now being converted into a cafe but the lighthouse is still working. Before she left us, Tor told us a bit about the people that actually lived at and maintained these lighthouses. People tend to think of lighthouse keeping as a very isolated job but that's only partly true. Walney Island, for instance, is fairly remote, but there were people living there even in the 18th century when the lighthouse was first constructed. In fact, the Lancaster Port Commission initially tried to hire local farmers to look after the light part-time, but that didn't work out very well. The lamps had to be filled and lit every night and put out every morning. The reflectors and the glass of the lantern needed to be kept clean and the building itself maintained. It was a lot of work and the farmers had their own concerns and couldn't be relied upon to do it consistently. So, before long, the commission built a cottage beside the lighthouse and started hiring full-time keepers to live there. We've got a list of the keepers in the Walney Lighthouse Visitors Book that's held in our collection and we can see that for most of the 19th century the lighthouse was run by members of the same family, the Geldarts. Well, that's quite typical, most lighthouse keepers would have had their families living with them and helping with the work of keeping the lighthouse and the actual job title was often passed down from parent to child. At some point in the Victorian era, the cottage at Walney was divided into two so that an assistant keeper could be formally taken on with a separate home for their own family. And in the 20th century, begin to see some different names on the list of keepers. Probably the best known is Peg Braithwaite. She lived at the lighthouse for most of her life from the time her father, Fred Swarbrick, was hired as assistant keeper in 1927. He was promoted to principal keeper a few years later. Peg's sister Ella was assistant keeper for several decades. And Peg herself started acting as a relief keeper in her teens. The two sisters helped keep the lighthouse going under some difficult conditions through the Second World War and beyond. Peg became assistant keeper after Ella died in the 60s and then served as principal keeper from 1974 until she retired about 20 years later. 
By all accounts, she was quite a character and a very hard worker. Aside from maintaining both the lighthouse and a radio beacon, she found time for a lot of charity work, and she was also a dedicated gardener. One of her regular reports to the Port Commission mentions that in a single season she harvested 13 stone, or about 80 kilos, of potatoes from the gardens around the lighthouse cottage. Back on our side of the bay, the loon lights at Cocker Sands and Plover Scar only ever warranted one official keeper, even though in some ways they were more difficult to manage than the single large lighthouse on Walney. The upper light at Cocker Sands Abbey is right beside the keeper's cottage, so that was fairly straightforward, but the lower light at Plover Scar is half a mile away in the middle of the River Loon. It can only be accessed at low tide by walking out over slippery rocks, and then you have to climb a ladder up the outside of the tower to get to the lantern at the top. Up until the 1950s, it was lit by a paraffin lamp, so cans of fuel had to be carried up that ladder by hand every day, whatever the weather. First keeper was Francis Raby, who was hired when the two lighthouses were built in 1847. He was followed by his son Henry, and then his granddaughter Janet. They all shared the work with other family members, and also divided their time between working the lighthouses and fishing in Morecambe Bay. In 1945, Janet Raby was replaced by Thomas Parkinson, with his wife Beatrice and his son Bob. And just like the Rabies, the whole Parkinson family shared the job of keeping the lighthouses between them, so that Thomas didn't have to keep cutting his fishing trips short. Beatrice took on enough of the work that she became quite famous for a while as the only woman lighthouse keeper in Britain, even though she wasn't either the official keeper or the only woman actually doing the job, not by a long shot, what with Peg and Ella Swarbrick just across the bay, and probably any number of other wives, daughters and assistants working in lighthouses all around the country. There's lots of information online about parabolic reflectors and the history of lighthouses in general, or you can pick up some books on the subject in the Maritime Museum shop. For more about our local lighthouses, there are a couple of articles on the museum's website, or you can visit Lancaster Library, which has a fantastic reference section for local history. Thank you so much for following us on this journey in 100 Years, 100 Objects. In our other episodes, we'll be shining a light on objects from musical instruments to medical notebooks.